I've seen a city of gold I've seen a future untold I've seen a people in need I've seen their hopes and their dreams But we won't falter in fear We won't cry, we won't shout We must rise for our peers And never waver in doubt Because we are la unidad latina The land is there Uh, welcome to the Para Siempre podcast. My name is Kevin Mendoza. I am your host. And today we have, uh, I call him Frenchie. Um, <laughs> his name is Manu. Um, I've actually known uh, Frenchie since um, actually my time in DC. So I was there for four years. And uh, luckily, I was actually able to see you when you were first actually starting uh, your business. So I think this is going to be really cool because I actually got to see firsthand just a little bit of your life before you had 40 plus employees and a nice office. Um, so, uh, you know, Frenchie, go ahead and introduce yourself and then we'll kind of jump into uh, just talking about your, uh, your journey. Sure. Uh, so my name is Armando Emmanuel Smaja. I go by Frenchie or Manu these days at uh, my company. I pledge Spring 01 at UVA or AE, Alpha Epsilon chapter. Uh, and then, uh, yeah, about my, my company or maybe my journey real quick. So I, um, I pledged in spring one, graduated in 03 in computer science at UVA, stayed on, did a master's degree in systems engineering, graduated from that in 06, then you know, did sort of the corporate America route, which, which I enjoyed. I, uh, I worked in commodity chemicals in Texas, met some of the bros in Dallas and San Antonio uh, at that time, then moved to Boston to work for Capital One uh, in healthcare financing, met some of the bros in Boston, that was also fun. And uh, then uh, my division of Capital One went under during the 2008 crisis. I followed my boss at the time, this guy named uh, Jason Robbins, who had become the CEO of DraftKings. I don't know if anyone's into like fantasy sports, um, but that was my manager. Uh, now he's like this billionaire, part of a public company that you know, people play uh, yeah, fantasy football on. So, uh, so I, I, I followed him at a Vistaprint, then I went to do an MBA at INSEAD. So I was sort of MIA for a few years in, in Europe and Asia and Sub-Saharan Africa. And uh, I sort of decided to come back to DC. Uh, I worked uh, in management consulting at McKinsey, decided to come back to DC in 2011 and uh, worked in management consulting out of DC. So I think at that point in time, Kevin, you were also in DC and uh, that's probably when, when we spent some time hanging out. And uh, you know, I was always going back and forth to like Nigeria or Togo or Ghana and taking these crazy flights <laughs> via Atlanta for 13 hours. And uh, anyway, in uh, late 2013, um, there's sort of a trigger event in my life. I, there's a, and it started with a bro at UVA who reached out on the AE uh, server and, and essentially was like, hey guys, uh, I'm $500 short on my rent this month. I'm going to get evicted and I'm thinking about dropping out of school. 
And, and that resonated with sort of like my own financial struggles while in school and that of my Lang brothers. You know, it's still deep in my head that my, my Lang brother, Juan Carlos, was like paying for his meal plan on his credit card at the time, right? And sort of living like one semester, you know, at a time trying to, trying to make ends meet. And, um, and so, you know, that, 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 uh, that, that brother's experience in 2013 kind of like, you know, lit up a bulb in my head. I sent him the money. I said, yo, you know, stay in school. You, you're a year and a half away from graduating. You're doing well academically. You're a mechanical engineer or you're an engineer in, in the country, the U.S. that's so desperate for STEM talent. You're going to graduate and do well. And, uh, you know, you'll pay it forward. But then I thought, you know, this, this hits close to home. It hits close to home for me and for a lot of brothers uh, over the years who've dropped out of school because of financial reasons or mom and dad faced financial hardship and they felt like they had to drop out of school. And so I, I joke that I'm an accidental entrepreneur in that I, I was happily on the partner path at McKinsey. Uh, I was well compensated. I was traveling all over the place. I was solving really interesting issues in financial services and financial inclusion. But this sort of event uh, positively derailed me. It made me think, okay, how big is this issue of lack of finance to higher education? How many students are dropping out of school every year? Uh, how many students, DACA students, low-income Americans or international students are not able to come and study? And, um, and so being the good little management consultant I was, I pulled up my IBM laptop, crunched some numbers and was like, wow, this is not just a big social opportunity, it's a big financial opportunity. Uh, and it's something that resonates with me. I'm gonna go out and solve this challenge. Uh, and I think I was, I was graced with quite a bit of like naivete and uh, that I had no clue how difficult this would be. And so it's sort of like the little fly that doesn't know, you know, that it's way too fat and has way too small wings to in order to fly and just like keeps on doing it. Uh, there's a little bit of that with me and in, in that like I just didn't realize how rough the, the path ahead would be or how under equipped I would be to do it. But it, somehow it's so far it's worked okay. Yeah, so you said you got your master's and then you uh, went uh, abroad and you also got another master's or what was that? Yeah, yeah, so I got my, I did my undergrad and then I took a, a year of uh, research in between undergrad and grad and I did my master's and I got paid for it uh, by the school. So I got a stipend. I was living the dream at UVA. It was sort of like an extension of undergrad. Uh, so I stayed seven years at UVA. The last three were research and two years of master's. And then after that, I worked for three and a half years, and then I went to get an MBA in Europe, 10-month program. So I, I felt like I spent enough time in school, so I was trying to do the MBA quickly. And then, uh, and then I worked again after that. And that's where you met your co-founder, right? I met my co-founder at business school. Yeah, yeah. And he and I, so he was a serial entrepreneur, and uh, so, so startups were his life. And from, from a young age, he, he's sort of a, a child prodigy, like he he went to Purdue University for engineering at age 14, right? So like four years before most kids start. He graduated when he was 19 years old with like two majors and three minors. And he went to work for Sapient, the uh, software software consulting company. Uh, and then after two years, he's like, I'm not making enough money. And so he, he asked his boss for some ludicrous like comp package, like some, some unreasonable number that he derived from whatever millions of dollars of revenue he was bringing as a, to the company through the clients. And of course, like the sapient like management team was like, no, like who is this like 20 at the time he's like 21 years old, like who's this 21 year old like asshole who's asking for all this money? 
Um, and then he's like, you know what? If you don't want to give it to me, fine, I quit. And so anyway, so from that point, Mike, my, my, my co-founder, like essentially went on his own and did like one startup after the other. Typically small services or product businesses, like things that require two or three, five people max in construction, photography, software development, you name it. Uh, and then realized that uh, he was doing all these things, but never scaling uh, and, and, and felt a little bit like a fraud in that he didn't have formal business experience. He was a software developer. Uh, he was a computer science major like me. So he went to INSEAD. So I didn't say that he and I became friends for <laughs> over a woman, actually. Um, I was hitting on this girl and he became my wingman. And this is when like we like, it was just like, you know, immediate bonding experience. I had zero game. He, he had probably the same amount of zero. And so uh, we helped each other out. And so anyway, so uh, it, was, it was pretty fun. And, and then we took a class together, him because he was taking all these entrepreneurship courses and me uh, because I could get this class done in a week and then go to Morocco to see my line brother, John, at the time, who uh, was, was there on an assignment with his wife. Uh, she, she works for the State Department. So anyway, um, long story long, this class was awesome. It was the best class I ever took, uh, this entrepreneurship course. It brought all these concepts together, like finance, marketing, all these topics that were really cool. And um, yeah, I, uh, you know, it, it, it planted a seed in my head. I'm like, you know, an entrepreneurship can be kind of interesting intellectually. And so, but I, at that time I had an offer to go work for McKinsey. I was, you know, I, I didn't really have any desire to launch a company. I just thought it was cool. But Mike, Mike and I made a really good team during that class. And he's like, you know, I know you're, you're going into consulting, but if you ever start a company, or want to start a company, give me a call. And because uh, that's what I do. And so over the years, he and I would just stay in touch. I was living eventually in DC starting in 2011 and he was in New York. And, uh, you know, we're good friends. We just like meet up uh, and shoot the shit, like, you know, make jokes and, and go into bars and get into all sorts of shenanigans. And uh, anyway, uh, we'd come up with these horrendous, horrendous business ideas. I think one of them was like fromage wheel. It was this idea that, you know, me being French, we could sell cheese to Americans and we'd like, it was online and we'd sell them a wheel of cheese and they could choose which one. It was like, it was the dumbest, probably one of the dumbest ideas I've ever had. Um, so these ideas would never last longer than a weekend. Like we'd get all excited about it, like have way too many beers. And then, you know, on Monday it was like, yeah, this was, this was a freaking dumb idea, wasn't it? And it's like, yeah, we would never quit our jobs to do this. Um, until, uh, until Empower came around. And, uh, and, and so, you know, from that personal experience of mine as a struggling student and, and the brothers and so on, I, I decided I wanted to do something about it. And I called Mike. Uh, and the thing about Mike I haven't talked about is uh, he came over to the U.S. as a, a refugee from Iran. Uh, he grew up on welfare in the middle of Iowa, of all places. His mom had to cut hair to, to make enough money to send him to Purdue. And he was, uh, he was on a close to full ride there. So uh, his education is what allowed him to get to, you know, from where he was to where he is now. And so, and his dad was the dean of Esfahad University in Iran as well. So he comes from a, a very strong uh, sort of um, academic family. Uh, and so anyway, so he, he was immediately in love with the idea. And so the two of us just decided to go at it. And actually our employee number one uh, was a brother, Armando William Hernandez, who uh, joined us as a designer. And as a designer, he ended up being like a software developer and, and doing like 15 different jobs, managing our external communications. So it's, uh, I hope it was a great experience for him. It was certainly awesome to have him on the team. Yeah. 
And um, for the people that don't know um, the struggles that maybe an international student would, you know, when it comes to financing their education, can you like share a little bit of light on that? Sure. You know, and there's the stereotype that international students are, are all really wealthy and you know you notice sort of the Saudi student or Chinese student with a Ferrari parked on on the campus parking lot. I think what's uh, what's less clear is that you know for that one student there's 99 international students who are like walking to class or you know having more trouble putting a lot of financial stress on their families uh, to pay for their semester tuition. International students pay full fare there's no federal aid there's no federal grants. Um, there's typically no private student loans that they can get either, unless they have a, what we call a rich uncle. So a US citizen who's willing to be a co-signer and, and is a credit worthy co-signer. Uh, that's roughly 1% one, 1 of international students have access to that. So the other 99% are you know, left to trying to figure out how to pay tuition with the rupees or reais or rubles or RMBs that they have in their home country. To just to pick currencies with ours. So, so that's the, that's the struggle. Uh, and then, you know, in addition to that, international students are limited in how much they can work. So you can only work up to 20 hours a week. It has to be on campus. Um, you, you know, you, you're struggling oftentimes, not only with visas after you graduate, but also um, with like how many employers will, uh, will pick you for a job. So it's, um, it can be a, a big and stressful investment in your education, followed by a lot of stress afterwards to, uh, in order to recoup that investment and, and be able to work here. So Empower set out to make that a lot, uh, a lot easier. And, and DACA students, we got into by accident as a business. We found that a lot of people were applying on our platform and they were using their Mexican visa or South Korean visa, sorry, their Mexican passport or South Korean passport and uh, in reality, on their resumes, it was clear that they'd been in the U.S. for like 10 years or 12 years and so on. And we're like, wait, this doesn't, it doesn't really add up. If you're an international student, usually, you know, you just got here, you've been here a year or two, but not 10 or 15. Um, and then it turned out that these were DACA students who, you know, they didn't sort of want to come out as DACA. And uh, they were applying under the guise of internationals. And then we're like, okay, well, we need to make it sort of like safe for them to apply with us. Like, we'd love to help that, that student group. And so over time, we've changed the language on our site, the application process, the uh, documentation requirements. We've even lowered the pricing for DACA students um, because we found that they were the best sort of subgroup of, um, of borrowers um, that we had in terms of performance. Like we've, we've yet to have a DACA student default on our, on our loans. That's amazing. Um... And so I'm, I'm curious too, like when you made the, um, you know, like we were talking a little bit about this before, but you know, people romanticize entrepreneurship. I don't, I, even me with what I'm doing is I don't necessarily think entrepreneurship is for everyone. It's very stressful. Um, there is a lot of depression, a lot of anxiety um, that happens in just starting a business. So I'm curious, like how you managed your mental health when you were starting your business. Yeah, I, I think having a co-founder helped. And having someone who, who you know, I, Mike, my co-founder was helpful in, in his skills and mine complemented each other. So I was more the finance and credit and sort of general management type person. And he was more the sort of the technical skills. And, and also he had more startup skills. I was more like corporate background. So I was more rigid and thankfully he was a lot more flexible than I was. So he helped us sort of solve problems a lot better. 
I don't know why I'm doing this. This is like flexible or ride the waves uh, sign. Uh, but anyway, so so that that was uh, that was really helpful. Uh, but yeah, as I as I think about entrepreneurship and how you manage emotions, um, I observed Mike a lot. One thing he was able to do initially that uh, it took me a while to do is just disconnect. So you know, at seven p.m. or eight p.m. or whatever, he just like calls it a day. You don't pass out on like a couch. Um, which, you know, for me, it was really hard. Like I was just wired and I, I, it was in my head even when I was away from my laptop or my desktop. And um, I still struggle with that, but occasionally I force myself to sort of leave my computer around seven or so. Uh, so I can, you know, and I'll go for a walk or run or play some soccer, et cetera. So sports is my outlet. Uh, I think it's important to have an outlet uh, and, you know, and ideally a healthy outlet. I've, I've met people who, whose outlets is like drinking or drugs or sex. Uh, you know, that I, I don't know how sustainable those are. I guess sex should be, but, uh, you know, mine is, mine is sports. Uh, other people, they, you know, they like to watch TV or read or, you know, I think uh, it, whatever it takes. To, to get you to disconnect. Some people, you know, that another healthy one is, you know, spending time with their kids or, or their dog, just like reminds them that they're human beings and, you know, there's more to life than just their work. So that's one way to manage emotions. The other one is to manage risk, right? So you're always gonna have like ups and downs on emotions. Those swings will be a lot higher if you haven't sort of controlled the controllables and managed your risk adequately. So what I would recommend is some entrepreneurs are sort of uh, reckless with risk, like they'll take a lot of financial risk, you know, invest all their money, et cetera. That, that's generally not a good idea, right? So, you know, the, there's these myths around like maxing out your credit cards, et cetera. I, you know, sure there's a few people that made it through with that, but I, I would say that's a horrible idea. You're, you're already, as, as someone in a startup, you, you take so much personal risk, reputational risk, career risk. The last thing you want to add on top of that is financial risk. So, you know, either you have a sort of quote unquote lifestyle company, which by the way is, is a positive term, not a negative one, uh, that doesn't require too much cash and generates profits from early on, uh, in which case, great. Try not, you know, try to chip away some of your own money and, and, not, uh, and not, not use any. Uh, or you have more of a like hockey stick, hyper growth startup and then use other people's money, like fundraise from friends and family and eventually seed, seed stage investors or accelerators, et cetera. And then, you know, VCs, et cetera. Um, or, you know, or, or, you know, take a little bit and, and try to build it into uh, a lifestyle or, or more sustainable kind of business. But yeah, so, so that's one way to reduce stress is not take financial stress on top of the, uh, on the other, uh, sort of sources of stress that you may have as an entrepreneur and disconnect sorry yeah. that was a little ranty oh no, that was good those are <laughs> oh, those are good tips um and um can you tell me a little bit about when you when you were starting like when you were like oh i kind of feel like i made it and i don't even know if that's if there's ever like really like i made it but was there ever a time where you're like oh this is a company like uh, oh, I'm, I'm rehiring actually. And now I have a team. Was there like, did it ever hit you where you're like, you got to that point, yeah. like a turning point for you? Yeah. So I would definitely, I definitely agree with your first one. Like I never feel like we made it. Like we're still, you know, if anything, I, I feel like I hit rock bottom during COVID and it's still a challenge and then power could go away tomorrow, like literally. And so I, 
it's um it it continues to be stressful and be tough ups and downs i think a big turning point for me and sort of a high um, is um, it, the last six to seven years just feel like they flew by, right? And, and it doesn't feel like that long ago that I was literally in, in this same apartment I'm in now. And it was myself, Mike and Will. We had a bunch of sleeping bags and our laptops and we were doing hackathons over the weekend. Like we'd work a full week and on the weekend we'd be like, okay, now let's do like 12 or 14 hours straight each day focused on a specific challenge at the company, whether we were trying to release something or develop a credit algorithm or whatever it was. So that, that feels like yesterday to me. And then at some point, maybe two years ago or so, um, we had our first big office. We have an office now in DC that fits 87 people. Uh, by the way, it, it sounds really fancy and great and cool. It's the dumbest financial investment you know we ever made, especially now with COVID in retrospect. But uh, uh, you know, well, let's leave it at its cool for now. And uh, anyway, the big revelation is I'm walking down, you know, what's what's now our office. It's a big office full of people, and and I I there I pass a bunch of meeting rooms, and it's these transparent doors, right? All these glass doors, and and all these different people at my company are having meetings, and I'm like, you know what? I have no clue what they're having meetings about, right? Like we're at the stage now where like. Empower went from being my baby, like literally my brainchild, to I am an employee of my own brainchild from a few years ago. And it has its and a life of its own as an organism. There's meetings on topics that I don't even know about that at some point I won't even understand because you know, the more you go, the more like technically savvy different groups become or, or specialized. And and I'm just a generalist. And so, you know, that hit me at that point in time. I was like, wow, this is both like crazy and cool at the same time that like, you know, this was in my head and now it's this physical reality that I'm a part of. And I thought, you know, what? I, I'm, I'm not a dad yet. I'm sure I'll have kids at some point, but it, it felt to me like that may be what it's like being a dad when, you know, your kid goes off to college or graduates or like, you know, surpasses you intellectually. Um, and that, that's sort of the feeling I had at that time. Yeah. And you, you touched on um, just like COVID and how it's been affecting the business. Can you talk a little bit about, about that? And, you know, obviously, you know, I would imagine international students, you know, going back home or some that wanting to continue their education. So how's that affected your business? Yeah, it's been, you know, COVID sucked on, on many levels. Um, and, you know, we, we lost brothers to it. It's, it's been horrible. Um, in, at Empower, it's it's had a few impacts. So one is we let go a dozen people uh, in March. And, uh, you know, we let people go over the years, right, for performance, et cetera. But it's another thing when it's not related to performance. It's just like the world sucks and, you know, we, we're short on money. And 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 then it's it, it sucks even more when you're having to part with people and, you know, you know that it's not an easy environment to bounce back uh, into like out there. So, you know, thankfully there were government measures, there was a bit more money, you know, for unemployment and, and most of our staff is highly qualified and, you know, then the DC job markets is, is somewhat okay. So they, they bounce, they bounce back. And as far as I know, they all got, you know, jobs that pay the same or more and so on. So, so it ended up being okay, but at the time it, it, it hurt. Um, it, it hurt like, and, you know, and these are, are folks that build a business with you. And so they're, they're friends. Um, 
So that part, that part was difficult. The navigating through the uncertainty of it was also difficult. You know, you can't, as a leader, you know, people look up to you and, you know, to, to give direction or reassurance, et cetera. Um, and, and during COVID, you know, we, we had more open town halls and so on where people could ask questions, but we didn't have the answers. Like, and we had to be honest about it. Like, I, I was just like, I wish I could tell you it's all going to be okay. And, and in six months, we're going to be flush with money as a company and so on, but I, I don't know. Um, and so, you know, I, I am now treading that fine line between being honest with people, um, but also making sure that, you know, I'm, I'm not panicking anyone either. Um, is because some people, they, they have a rougher time in a startup environment, you know, dealing with the ups and downs. And it's my job as the CEO also to go and make sure the business has the resources it needs. So that's been, that's been another sort of difficult time. Now there's been some upsides. Um, one is during an economic shock, we were able to prove our credit model a lot more. So, you know, we, international students, tech students, low-income Americans actually, the, the all the ones we finance pay back at a much higher rate than the average American student. And, uh, and, and we are always given kudos for that, but the question we got back from lenders was always, well, yeah, but what about in an economic shock? How will you perform? And, and COVID was that economic shock for us. And we were able to show, well, you know what? In an economic shock, these students are even more resilient. They're even more resourceful. And we haven't seen a blip in performance. So that's been the silver lining for us. The other one is, People imagine that due to COVID, all these international students went back home. Uh, and, and that's not really the case. 80% um, of international students in any given year, they're, they're in North America, right? There's, you know, they're finishing their second year, third year, or senior year, or their grad degree, et cetera. And then there's about 20% of international students every year that's sort of a refresh, like they're coming from overseas and uh, they're, they're starting their studies. The 80% that were here, COVID meant they just didn't get to go home. They couldn't see mom and dad or their brothers and sisters this summer. They just had to stay here on a friend's couch. Actually, maybe some bros hosted some of them or um, you know, at a, on, on some temporary housing on campus or elsewhere or at some distant relative in the, in the US. Uh, so that's what happened for a lot of them. So they, you know, and then they went back to school in, in September, just like a few weeks back. Uh, the other 20%, some of them deferred, um, some of them decided to come anyway, uh, some of them decided to uh, do the most, most of them actually decided to do their degrees from overseas. So start their master's or their undergrad degree online. Uh, for Empower, it's been good business for a sad reason, which is that due to COVID, a lot of banks in the home countries have pulled back funding uh, or mom and dad in the home countries have lost their jobs, or the small business that the student had in the home countries and doing so well. So as a result of that, they need to borrow more. So we've been sort of a band-aid solution for a lot of these students who otherwise would have been fine financially, um, but during COVID are, are experiencing hardship. So, you know, mixed bag, difficult decisions in the business, but okay economic environment for us. Gotcha, yeah. And um, you mentioned a little bit about remote work and, and you know, the office. Uh, I'm curious, like, what's your stance now with, with people working remotely? Do you feel like moving forward, you would want to run your business where people are working from home and then you just kind of subsidize their, 
you know, rather pay for their office supplies versus having to pay for a building? Yeah, I was sort of old school. Um, I'm, I'm sort of traditional, almost like the army for, for a lot of the ways I, I run my business. You know, we have like an 8 a.m. check-in. You've experienced it, right? Like a 5 p.m. check-out. Uh, and then we, I, I like to have people uh, at work in an office. Uh, and I think over time, we, we loosened it from five days a week to four days a week to now three days a week. Um, during COVID, but I was reluctant to doing more than that, right? I, I thought it was important to have physical presence in the office and days where we all work together. Um, because of COVID on March 9th, we all picked up our laptops and we just worked from home. That was true in DC and also in our office in Bangalore in India. And uh, it's been fine. It's been seamless. You know, everything's in the cloud. All this. So we, we didn't really miss out on anything. There's no paperwork or anything physical we really need each other for. So we, uh, we continued working from our laptops. We did a survey and 80% uh, of the people at the company really like it that way. Like uh, the same or better than sort of physically coming to the office. The remaining 20 uh, 20%, so myself included, kind of miss the office and find that working from home is not as efficient or effective. Um, but yeah, I, I think it's changed my mind. I, I think I realized that I need to find a way to cater to people's individual needs, right? And I was aware of like, you know, introverts, extroverts, people who live in DC proper, people who live in, live in the vicinity of DC. How do, you, how do you make sure that everyone is at 100 or 120%? Um, and I, I think it's probably made me more flexible on the, uh, the in-person versus remote type of work. And I, and I think that's the case for most people. Like we all realize, oh shit, you know what? I don't need to fly halfway across the world for a half day workshop, or I don't need to go and you know, drive to New York or Boston or San Fran or San Antonio or whatever for, for like the day to meet with like three clients. I can just have a Zoom call from the comfort of my home. It's just as efficient, if not more. So. Uh, I think that's been good. More time with family, uh, less stress on time. It's more environmentally friendly. It's cheaper. So lots of benefits. Yeah. And what uh, kind of self-development or realizations did you have you came up with um, during this pandemic, you know, spending more, obviously, like you mentioned, less traveling, less, you know, commuting, just in general, being at home. Um, curious how that's maybe helped you envision the future of just being, you know, being an entrepreneur, a CEO, or just running a company? Um, it, it, I'm sure it's been the case for a lot of people, but it's been a lot more alone time than I've been used to. Um, and so I, I think I got in touch with my inner introvert a lot more. My goal for this year was to learn how to make pizzas. I love pizzas, so I, I, you know, I developed that skill set, which, you know, it's not that impressive, uh, but uh, you know, so, so I, I learned a few things. I started, you know, trying to learn a few words of Hindi because we have an office in, in Bangalore and I'd love to be able to throw a few words in there. I'll never be fluent, but at least to, to break the ice uh, with strangers or, or, you know, make my employees chuckle. So um, that's been good. I've learned to enjoy sports so i play soccer which is a team sport and so i've learned to enjoy sports that you know don't require a team so running or you know bodybuilding at home and so on so i've uh, as you can see i'm really body built no but like you know what i'm talking about um uh, just doing exercise and calisthenics on my own that's been good uh more time for reflection i wish i could say like i've done you know something really deep uh i can't i can't say i've, I've done as much um 
I imported my girlfriend from, from India during this time. So, you know, maybe it's TMI, but I, I divorced. I separated last year from my ex-wife and finalized the divorce during COVID. And, you know, and then I was away. I was separated from a girlfriend I had for like six months during COVID. And then she, she came over to the U.S. Um, one other thing I've done is I've applied for my U.S. citizenship during this time. Yeah, yeah I've had it. 21 year a relationship on and off with the US, you know, and so I, I decided uh, it was time to commit. So I, I'm going to be a US citizen eventually. Why, why did you wait? It's a good question. Part of it was logistics. So up until like three, four years ago, I wasn't even eligible. Like I've been on two, <coughs> sorry, two F1s. So two student visas, three H1s, or, or rather two, but switched three times. Um, then went overseas, then came back on an L1 visa, and then finally uh, got a green card just a few years ago. And then, you know, three years ago, I think I passed the threshold of like, I had my green card for five years and I was eligible to apply for citizenship. Um, I wasn't sure uh, about US citizenship. I think a few things compelled me. One is <laughs> 2016 elections uh, drove the point that I, I wanted to be able to vote. Uh, and, uh, and, and I, it was the most frustrating thing to you know, sit there and have to watch and not be able to at least you know, say, even if it didn't matter like that, that I voted and I tried to do my part. The other part is, um, ironically, um, if you want to leave the U.S., you're better off having citizenship than the green card. Uh, with a green card, you, you have to stay a certain number of years in the U.S., um, every, every three years you have to stay 18 months or something like that. So if, if I wanted to live in France or Latin America or Asia for some period of time, uh, I could jeopardize my chances of coming back and still having a green card. And so that's why I wanted to be a U.S. citizen is to leave. Gotcha. So I, I have a couple questions about, um, you know, just like diversity and tech. So, um, I'm, I'm very curious. What is, you know, what is diversity in tech, you mean? What, what does that mean? Exactly. That's sad. Um, sad. I'm, I'm curious, like, as you're hiring people, right? Like, you know, uh, one of the CEOs of Wells, the CEO of Wells Fargo apologized for saying he can't find, you know, talented black people to work, you know, work there. And so I'm very curious to know, like, what's kind of been your experience in finding, like, people of color you know, to be able to take on some of these jobs that are very much needed? Yeah, I think, so I, I, I don't identify as white, right? And, you know, I, I think I, I'm sort of a, a hybrid. <laughs> and so when I, and, and Mike, my co-founder Mike is Iranian. Uh, and so when the two of us went out there, I think we, what was first on our mind is gender diversity. So we were very much like two dudes and we're like, yeah, we need, we're going to need a chaperone. Like we're going to need to build some, some kind of like balance at this company. And so we, we took diversity seriously from the start. Um, I was always a champion diversity and I always saw it also as, um, as an arbitrage. I think you can arbitrage a lot of things, but you can arbitrage talents, right? The fact that there's so much racism in the U S or, or ignorance or biases, uh, against women or against minorities, etc. In practice, it actually means that you can find better employees uh, that are minorities or women and so on for the same price that you would for a white male. Um, 
So at least that, that was my hypothesis going in, and I, I, I think that's very much true. And so we, we made it a priority of ours to actually and go after that. So we um, were probably one of the most diverse companies in the US in, in across all metrics, like race, nationality, uh, sexual orientation, gender. We're missing like a few categories. We don't have like a lot of like army veterans or, or people with disabilities, but like short of like some of these, some of these other sort of verticals, like we we're pretty diverse and we're not, the other thing I would say is like, there's something odd or disturbing about like a CEO saying like, oh, I want to hire black people for the sake of like hiring black people. It's like, it, you have to be able to see the strategic advantage that diversity brings to your company versus seeing it as a sort of tick the box exercise. Um, and, and so for us, it was clear from the start that we had borrowers from all nationalities and all religions. Uh, we had borrowers who were sort of like coming from very different backgrounds socioeconomically, uh, men and women. And so we needed a team that reflected that diversity. We needed a team of global citizens. And so, and it wasn't because we needed a certain quota of like XYZ people at the company. It was because we needed people who could relate to our customers, uh, who could speak different languages, who could understand the cultural concerns that different groups would have, uh, who could relate to the financial journeys that the students had. So we, a lot of the people at Empower, uh, they're diverse socioeconomically as well in that they struggled financially through school. Um, so, so that's another form of diversity that made sense for us. So, you know, I, I, where does that bring us in terms of, you know, the initial comment from the, the Wells Fargo CEO? It, I, as long as we don't sort of tackle the, the root cause of the issue, right, which is like people not understanding the value of diversity, uh, people not understanding or appreciating the the diversity of diversity, like it's not just like black and white people. Like there's, as long as this is where the debate stays, we're not gonna get anywhere, right? But when people realize like, you know what? Yeah, maybe having a bunch of old white dudes on my board, like 100% of that and my leadership team is gonna lead to some blind spots uh, until, until they appreciate that there's, or, or that it's not representative of the customer base or the suppliers or whoever they have until that, that light bulb doesn't light up. I'm not sure we're going to get anywhere. Um, and then, uh, you know, I, I was very sad and obviously when, when RBG passed away, but I love her quote of like, there'll be enough women on the US Supreme Court when there are nine. It's the same, right? Or Bobby Fischer back in the day had the same, like, you know, like we shouldn't strive towards equality, we should strive towards surpassing, right? Like if as minorities, we're always trying to be like, oh, we want the equal rights, you're never gonna get to equal, right? It's like almost mathematically, you're only gonna get like there, here, you have to aim here. And then eventually you get equal or you surpass it. And, and so that's how I think about it as well. Like, why are we, you know, sort of begging for second place? And so sorry, I'm, I don't wanna get all Malcolm X-y here, but like yeah, there's, a, there's a part of me that, that feels like we're, we're constantly cutting ourselves short or, or aiming too low. Um, so yeah, that's how I feel. Yeah. That's how I really feel, Kevin. That's great. <laughs> um, and you know, here's one thing that um, I was hoping that you can also answer in terms of diversity. Um, there is a lot of uh, my friends that have gone to graduate school here in the US and have said that their classes are essentially filled with international students. Mm -hmm. 
And so I'm really curious because I'm like, okay, we have these amazing schools, you know, teaching, you know, helping these students and it's the ones that are internationally coming and you see those in the classroom. And then I'm always wondering, I'm like, what's going on with the ones that are here? And I'm like, I would imagine, I haven't gone to grad school like that. So I would imagine, you know, you would think as an undergrad, you'd go to grad school, but then you're seeing that it's actually not really the case, especially when you come around um, majors, you know, uh, master's programs that are maybe major, like that are STEM related. Yeah, there's a massive shortage of STEM talent in the US. And uh, to the point where there's uh, affirmative action, even for, for white Americans, uh, to go into graduate degrees in STEM. So uh, even this was the case 15 years ago. It, I mean, this is like, it's crazy. Me as someone of European origin, applying to a master's in systems engineering, like I had the dean tell me that I would be at an advantage because most of the other students who apply are Indian or Chinese. And that creates language and cultural barriers and lack of diversity, especially when, you know, the graduate students in the U.S. are expected to teach courses for undergrads or serve as a teaching assistant or research assistant. So, you know, I never thought I'd benefit from affirmative action, um, but in this case I did. And, and a lot of American students would. They, they may not know they would, but they would. The issue is, if you're an American student, um, unless you studied STEM as an undergrad, it's really hard to jump into a graduate degree in computer science or mechanical engineering. So that, that already sort of narrows sort of your, your funnel of options. And then if you studied STEM as an undergrad, right, let's pick on computer science. If you have an undergrad degree of computer science, you can go work for Microsoft, like after graduation or, or Google or Facebook or whoever, and you can make 70K or, or more, like some, I found some undergrad from Purdue with a degree in computer science was making 120K her first year. She's like, it made me think like, where did I go wrong in life? Uh, you know, it's some insane amount of money. And so then it's sort of like, well, you can make that much out of undergrad and you work at Microsoft. And two years later, if you start at 70, you're probably at 90 or whatnot. Or you can go for two more years of a graduate degree. And when you come out, you're making 85. Like financially, it doesn't always make sense, I guess, is, is where I'm going with this. So the, you sort of have to be in love with the content and the research uh, in order to justify a master's degree uh, in, in the US. Um, a lot of people still go for MBA programs. So in MBA programs, you, you know, very clear return on investment and you, you see a lot of American talent go that route. It's also it doesn't have the same restrictions that a graduate degree in STEM does. Like in MBA programs, you have people who majored in computer science, but you also have people who majored in history as an undergrad. And so it, it's sort of a, a big equalizer. Uh, so those are, those are some of the obstacles. But I, I guess, you know, talking to young brothers, I would say absolutely consider a master's program for, you know, you can get it paid for. Uh, so definitely look at the return on investment you get for it. If you want to do STEM, apply to a bunch of schools and, and push hard to get a stipend, like to not pay tuition, to get a stipend for it. Uh, for me, it not only gave me new skills, but it, I also gained a lot in maturity uh, and in quality of writing and other things. I don't think I would have been, I was already so immature as an undergrad, I was still immature as a grad student, but I, I gained a lot in the meantime. And that was because you're in there with grown adults. That's right, uh, you're in there with, you're in there with adults, but you, you 
You know, these are formative years and, you know, you're working side by side with uh, professors, which you don't really do as much as an undergrad. You know, you, you're taking classes with professors, you might have a TA or so, but in this case, you are the TA or you are the research assistant. You sort of get to see the, the other side of the mirror. Um, you, you're grading assignments from undergrads. And uh, no, there's, there's something very interesting about that process. Like I, for me, it like I could, my mind just like leapfrogged during my three years of uh, research and, and master's degree. That's, that's great to hear. Um, is there any, I guess, uh, advice for, you know, people that want to maybe start their own business? We, you kind of alluded to it in our conversation before. Mm -hmm. uh, I'd love to get your feedback on, you know, people wanting to jump in and starting a business because everyone always pretty much, I feel like almost like eight out of 10 people say they want to start a business. Um, and I'm curious to know, like, when the signs are there to, like, take that leap and when it's, like, it's probably not a good idea. Yeah, it's, let me see if I can frame it in terms of questions. So one question I would say is, have you found a legitimate problem to solve that's felt by people? Or have you found a solution to what you think is a problem for people? So I think there's a lot of people there's a lot of entrepreneurs out there that have a solution in search of a problem. And, and that's not a recipe for success. Uh, that's, you know, that, that's, you may go somewhere with it or even get some initial funding, et cetera, but ultimately it'll fill the market. So it has to start with the market. It has to start with a real issue, a real gap that that society is facing. It doesn't have, you know, I'm talking in like social terms, but it, it could be a need. It doesn't have to have a social mission to it, but uh, it has to at least be a need, financial or otherwise. So that would be one piece of guidance is, you know, be honest with yourself. Like, is there really uh, a need for this? Or are you so in love with your own solution that you want to sort of project it onto a problem that doesn't exist? Um, the other part is, are you passionate enough about this topic that you're willing to put the next decade into it. Not the next two years, not the next three or four or five years, but the next decade. Because most companies, uh, that's the average age, like from start to exit is about seven years. Right? I think it's even from first funding to exit is about seven years. And that's if you get acquired, not if you IPO. If you IPO, it's even longer. So that's the longest any young person will ever have held a job usually. It's very rare these days to stay, you know, 10 years at, at a given job, uh, unless you're way later in your career and you're settled at, you know, some big firm that you like. So, so that's the other part is, are you ready for that big of a commitment? Or you're better off, you know, sort of hopping around two or three years at different jobs until you figure out something that really triggers you, and then you go into that. Then the other sort of other sort of questions I would have is why now? Um, you know, could you, I benefited a lot uh, from the corporate experiences I had. I don't think I could have done anywhere near what I've done at Empower without my four years of experience at McKinsey. And so, you know, do you, why now is important? Do you, do you feel, and, and you're never really prepared by the way for entrepreneurship. Um, every experience you have in your life helps you in entrepreneurship, uh, but you know, so so there's two. There's a flip side. You know, are you going too early um, because you don't have enough experience that you could sort of leverage, or are you afraid of going in there after ten or twenty or thirty years of experience, 
um, and, and the answer there is, you know, that you'll never have enough experience. Uh, to, there's nothing, nothing that prepares you fully for entrepreneurship. You have to jump uh, at some point. And I'm trying to see if, if there's other guidance. Um, yeah, I mentioned the part around risk and don't add financial risk on top of the other one. That tactically, that might mean that you should not just not invest financially in your own company, but you should also have maybe uh, several months of savings on your bank account in case things don't go well and you need three or six months to sort of switch back up and you know join a company somewhere or just this peace of mind. Um, again, it's it can be very stressful to run a company. It's even worse if you know you're sort of dependent on it financially. That's great. Um, I think that kind of covers everything I wanted to ask you. Um, and this is for the rest of the hermanos. Uh, you know, if, if you guys have any other hermanos that you think I should interview next, you guys can send me a message on, on Instagram for the Para Siempre podcast, or you can just email me at kevin.mendoza at launidadlatina.org. Um, and uh, Frenchie, is there like, are you hiring? Can people apply? Are you not hiring right now? Like, is there anything that maybe hermanos can like help you with if they're listening to this podcast? Sure. So we're always looking to spread the word about Empower. So if you have friends who are international or DACA and they, they're struggling financially or they need money for housing, meals, health insurance, books, uh, or, um, yeah, or tuition, they should definitely come on our website, www.empowerfinancing.com and apply. Um, as an American citizen or a green card holder, if you need money, we can also be an option. Uh, although we, there's a lot of other good companies out there like Ascent Student Loans, uh, although we certainly do lend to domestic students also. So uh, spread the word. Um, in terms of hiring, we COVID's kind of like uh, thrown a wrench at us a little bit this year, but we will be looking for summer interns uh, early next year. So you know, maybe uh, come on our website, sign up for our newsletter uh, so we can stay in touch with you. And then, um, Ken, I'm curious, you can't get off that easily. I want to hear about your entrepreneurial journey and sort of like what you've <laughs> learned also during COVID and, you know, sort of like you had two or three lessons from, you know, your experience so far, what would they be? Um, yeah, I, um, entrepreneurship is harder than I thought. And, and you hear people say that they're like, Oh, like, you know, they usually hear a lot of the good stuff and long hours and all this stuff. And honestly, it's really hard because it's more mental. I think it's the mental aspect of uh, we're conditioned to do a nine to five and you know what to expect, but when you do your own thing, you don't know what to expect. And there is a lot of, you know, uh, you could do, I think you talked about like minimizing risks. So yes, like there's things that you can do to maybe make your life a little easier. Mm -hmm. uh, but there is still that, that you're almost like there's some hope there that you kind of need to have, uh, yeah. but it can't be delusional hope either. Um, but uh, there's, and as you're working on your business, I think it's a lot of working on yourself first because um, any self doubt that you have or all these like, fears that you have, especially when it comes to failure is, is very powerful when you've uh, have always been used to succeeding. So if you were someone who got straight A's did well in school, um, you know, all of those things, I, they almost kind of sabotage you because you're, you're not used to failing and you're always used to winning. And when you start losing, 
losing, which is not really losing. It's like you're testing things. You take it very personal and it's, and you can't really have that serve as your identity. I would say like for us that for people that have been successful in, in kind of very traditional routes in corporate America, um, your work becomes your identity. And I think when you become an entrepreneur, man, like you kind of almost have to a little detach yourself from that and uh, have a bigger vision of what you're doing, which is like helping people uh, in what you're doing. Um, and that tends to keep me kind of going. Hmm. So I'm curious if that's, if you've kind of, obviously like you have employees and stuff, I don't have employees yet, but if that's something that you've also encountered. It's a very humbling experience to be an entrepreneur, right? Cause I, uh, people look at you differently, right? I, especially, you know, I, I transitioned from McKinsey or like you say McKinsey and people like have little like stars in their eyes and stuff. And so you, you command sort of different attention or behavior in a corporate environment. And then all of a sudden you're like, you know, I'm this little clown that like has an, you know, a company of two and uh, I want to work with schools. And it's like, okay, yeah, nice boy. You know, go like, it, it's just, um, it, you learn rejection at a whole other level. Um, and to your point, you can't take it personally, right? It's saying they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting, you know, the organization that you're trying to create, which right now is just a baby organization. That's how, you know, in my, in my initial days. And so um, it, you sort of, you're right. You have to work on, on staying humble, uh, not taking things personally. I was, would call it faith. I, uh, I joke that like I, I was baptized Catholic. My parents are Protestant. I have Jewish heritage, but I really learned faith through Empower um, because he, through all the, here's the squiggly ups and downs again, uh, through all these sort of like ups and downs, you sort of have to have this a little bit of delusion actually that you're going to pull through that like you know when even when everyone is doubting you know never falter in the face of fear or doubt like you're you're gonna yeah see i still remember it's been 20 years um that you're gonna you're gonna pull through so i think yeah uh, yeah what you say resonates a lot yeah yeah it definitely has crossed my mind where i'm like should i get a job at google like and and uh and then you like just try to think five ten years ahead and you're like no like that's you know if you wanted that you would have stayed doing what you were doing and so um and i don't know if that's crossed your mind of, like i think everyone crosses about like crosses their mind of giving up but then something's like snap yourself out of that did that ever happen when you were first starting yeah it still happens today um <laughs> yeah it's uh it's difficult i think what you know, what keeps me going is the mission. And that goes back to like, you know, this commitment. It's commitment for the long run. You have to find a problem that you're really, really passionate about. If it's something you're only half passionate about, it's, you know, we're all smart, you know, hermanos, and, and it's, it's, if it doesn't really resonate at your core, you're gonna have other opportunities. It, it's, in a way, it's almost like marriage, right? Like if you're only like half passionate about your spouse, there's, there's enough like temptation around that like something would happen. So, so it really has to be sort of a match made in heaven. And then every day you make a commitment to like, you know, build that relationship further, deepen that, um, deepen yourself. Uh, and that's how things work. Love it. All right. So man, well, thanks for jumping on the podcast and uh, hopefully we'll have you on in years and see what you've built and be all the amazing lives you've changed more lives you've changed. 
funny, funny. More of the same. <laughs> we'll just have more gray hair. Uh, yeah. <laughs> awesome, man. Thanks for jumping on. Thanks, Satan, for doing this. Uh, I'm proud of Sam for your brother. I, I appreciate it. Cheers.